I, I hope that the the pandemic itself, the way it played out in this country and around the world, is a wake-up call for why we need information systems that and, and news that that brings communities together instead of dividing them, which is what we have now. So the the, the there is no cure for the infodemic that involves tinkering with the algorithms or you know. Uh, you know, kind of making changes to the information system around the edges. It requires political leadership, responsible political leadership over a long period of time. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When people in Wuhan, China, began mysteriously falling ill in December 2019, the Chinese government moved quickly to quash news about the disease outbreak. That crackdown on information proved to be the perfect accelerant for the COVID-19 pandemic to take off and spread throughout the world. Joel Simon is the co-author of the new book, Infodemic, How Censorship and Lies Made the World Sicker and Less Free. He and co-author Robert Mahoney argue, quote, Alongside the COVID-19 pandemic, there was an infodemic, a deluge of lies, distortion, and bungled communication that obliterated the truth. Joel Simon is a journalist and a fellow at the Toe Center for Digital Journalism at the Columbia Journalism School. He's the former executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. I began by asking him to explain what censorship looks like today. Yeah, I think you have to start with a, you know, a recognition of what is the intention of censorship? Why do governments censor? They censor because they want to impose their narrative, their version of events uh, on you know, people's understanding. And the way to do that when power was hierarchical and information was hierarchical was you know the famous you know censors red pen where they put a big x through uh some some newspaper copy or there was some government official sitting in the newsroom and saying uh uh-uh, that you're not you're not going to publish that or arresting journalists or using kind of you know those kinds of, of strategies that still exists there are places around the world uh in fact there are record numbers of journalists in, in prison around the world but we live now in an environment where it's not information that's scarce, it's attention. There's plenty of information. So the way government censor is not by suppressing information, it's by monopolizing our attention and confusing us and putting out lies and propaganda and misleading us and basically drowning us in a deluge of lies and misinformation that really has the same impact. It allows governments to impose their version of reality on uh, us, on their citizens. And uh, sometimes this is called censorship through noise or flooding. And it's a new form of censorship that exists alongside the old form of hierarchical censorship. You write that alongside the COVID-19 pandemic, there was an infodemic. Explain what you mean. So this is reflective of, reflects a long-term trend. The, the kind of censorship I just described. So you get to a moment in our history where there's this unprecedented global pandemic, a threat to public health everywhere. And the main tool that governments have in the initial phase of this pandemic is communication. 
That's really all they have. It's the ability to inform their citizens, convince them to take appropriate measures to protect the health of their communities. Uh, and they completely squandered this opportunity because it involved taking, making, making hard, some hard decisions and it involved recognizing their own shortcomings. And most governments around the world were completely unwilling to do this. So instead of acknowledging the threat and taking, making the difficult choices and inviting the public to engage with their, their leaders in that process, they suppressed, manipulated, censored this information, undermined public understanding, and in many instances used it as a pretext not to, to impose new restrictions on people's liberties that were intended not to combat a public health emergency, but to consolidate power. So that was the infodemic. The infodemic was the flood of lies, misinformation and censorship, which accompanied the pandemic, allowed authoritarian leaders to consolidate power and undermine public health around the world. You describe the arc of this infodemic and pandemic combination as it began in Wuhan, China, and then really raced across a sort of unknown, the authoritarian world first. Explain that trajectory of the virus. So when the virus first emerged in Wuhan, there were indications that it was, there was a, you know, a, a, a new disease that was spreading uh, and the response of the Chinese government, which is almost always its response was to cover up and censor this information. And it was only a handful of doctors and medical professionals and independent bloggers who challenged this narrative uh, and for a brief time were able to elevate it. But I think what happened was the Chinese government you know, su successfully suppressed information about the disease. And so when it sort of jumped from China and began to spread around the world, most countries were completely unprepared. And in the authoritarian world, they saw, they, they reacted to the virus, to this new public health emergency, this new pandemic disease, the way they might react to a terrorist threat, you know, calling out the army, uh, you know, um, uh, imposing restrictions on the population that were really intended to strengthen uh, government power. And this was completely contradictory because they did this while at the same time denying that the, that the disease itself was a threat to public health. So they covered up the disease, they uh, usurped power, and they undermined public understanding. We saw this in Iran. We saw this in Egypt. We saw this in Nicaragua. We saw this in Russia. These countries have nothing in common sort of ideologically. It was just a natural response to authoritarian leaders to suppress information, to cover up and uh, deny uh, something that they felt was a threat to their power. Hmm. Um, you write that the, it was a, a curious uh, mixture, a combination of technology, declining public trust, and collapsing local media that made censorship more effective in this modern era. So let's take each one of those. Talk about the technology that evolved, which, as you point out, was largely the technology of surveillance. And of course, that has the power to cut both ways. So what has happened in terms of 
the evolution of technology in response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, let's sort of start with a, with a sort of information system, the global information system that was in place at the time the pandemic started, which is, you know, highly uh, decentralized and one in which, you know, information can spread quickly. So, so that has been, you know, the, a boon in many instances to the ability of people around the world to share information and access information that they previously would not have been able to access. But what's happened is this same technology has been weaponized by governments around the world who understand that they can flood this system with, with, with lies and propaganda and simply overwhelm it. And so we're seeing governments take this approach both in a, in, a, in, a, in a national context and as a way of undermining and challenging adversaries and kind of using the global information spaces Russia and China have to uh, assert their own version uh, of, of reality. So that was the kind of information system that was in place when the, when the pandemic began. And then we saw governments further weaponize this system by using it to suppress and harass critics, to marginalize and discredit experts, and also to expand surveillance. Um, China, which had a, had a system of surveillance in place, which is unrivaled in the world, greatly expanded that system during the pandemic so that they have the ability to monitor every, you know, basically every movement uh, of people in China. They, they added more surveillance technology. So in China, you have to have an app that uh, allows the government to monitor your every move and ensure that you're uh, complying with uh uh, restrictions on movement or lockdowns or what have you. And if you violate those restrictions and go into the street, they're going to use facial recognition technology to make to, 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 to track you. Um, but we're seeing this technology being rolled out in other places in authoritarian countries like Russia, but also democracies like like Israel. So uh, the 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 amount of information and surveillance that governments appropriated during the pandemic, in order as, as a public as a temporary health public health measure, is not temporary and is not a public health measure. We are more surveilled than at any time in human history. You know, in the height of the pandemic, and it remains to be seen when that is. Uh, we may still be in the height of the pandemic, um, not at the height of the death, let's say. But um, you know, we would hear about novel technologies where. Uh, f uh, cell phones in proximity to one another could communicate mm -hmm. and uh, local public health authorities or individuals could track in real time uh, where little outbreaks or positive people were. And, you know, at times this felt kind of cool, like maybe this is an answer. And of course, it also felt kind of weird and chilling. Is it your feeling at this point from the research you've done that these types of technologies inevitably get used uh, with malicious intent? Well, they get used with malicious intent by governments that have malicious intentions. Uh, I mean, the technology is uh, unavoidable. Uh, you know, we can't, we, can't, we can't put that back in the box. And the technology has, you know, very, very positive uses. I, our, our, the argument we make in the book is these kinds of technologies are so powerful that they must be accompanied by checks on 
the authorities that avail themselves of these technologies so that and there must be some level of transparency. We actually uh, talked about a case, for example, in Norway, where the government rolled out this kind of fairly intrusive technology that used um, GPS tracking. And there was like an, there was an outcry against it. Um, and the government sort of revamped its approach and used uh, Bluetooth technology, which is less intrusive because it's really uh, not about you know the, the, the kind of tracking information being uploaded to 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 a, to the cloud. It's about you know cell phones communicating with one another, you know. And even in in Russia, which is not a place where people where 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 the government listens to uh, the, uh, the, the, the 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 its citizens. Uh, the, the 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 app that the government introduced was so invasive. It would it would, it would actually, if you were uh, under quarantine, it would actually uh, wake you in the middle of the night with an alert, and you would have to take an immediate selfie and send it to the government to basically confirm that you were complying with quarantine. And this was so intrusive and invasive that even you know Russians you know pushed back against the government and the government reduced this this or eliminated this decision in Moscow uh, this push function so but you see the power and you see the tendency uh, of governments who uh, are looking for means and strategies for surveilling surveilling and monitoring their population we put a very very powerful tool in their hands you also talk about the role that the implosion of local media has had in terms of censorship and you um, you write that more than more than 90 local newsrooms disappeared in the year following the outbreak of the virus how does collapsing local media have a particularly powerful effect on censorship well i think listeners in, in, in vermont will understand this intuitively and understand it very well I mean, the thing about local media is it reinforces the reality that people experience every day in their daily lives. So if you, you know, if there's a, you know, a baseball game at the local high school or a city council meeting and you go to that or some other event and then you read about it in your local media, you're like, hmm, I was there. This is what happened. This reinforces my perceptions. These journalists are covering these events in a fair and accurate way and reflecting my community in that. Uh, creates the cycle of trust, and it is why local media is the most trusted form of media, as opposed to you know watching Fox News or even CNN or MSNBC or whatever you choose to watch, which is national and and tends to amplify conflict, and you tend to see things through a national uh, political lens, which is a polarizing one, and and so that doesn't breed trust. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is that COVID was a local story; it was a global pandemic but it really played out within communities. People within communities were looking for basic information, like where can I get tested? Uh, what is the mandate in my community? Are schools opened or closed? And, and this is all over the world. So people needed local news that they could trust, you know, and they needed coverage of their local communities and they needed media that could hold their local officials accountable. But the pandemic also created a crisis in revenue that had a huge impact on already very fragile local media outlets. So this, so the pandemic, the infodemic was facilitated by the collapse of local media, and the infodemic also accelerated this very negative trend. Hmm. Um, 
let's talk about you know where conspiracy theories and conspiracy uh, you know sites kind of merge with this infodemic. You describe the story of Charlie Loftus, a former yeah. cop, a guy who taught at uh, the local university, and kind of went down the conspiracy rabbit hole. So tell us his story and what we should take from it. Yeah, so I wanted to understand why people believe things that I, you know, from, from in my experience, knew simply to be false. Why would people believe these things? And uh, so I managed to track down somebody uh, who, who was a former cop, who was a big Trump supporter, and who was willing to speak very openly and honestly about his news consumption habits. He lives in Arizona. Arizona is a very divided and polarized place with huge debates over, you know, mask mandates and, uh, you know, response to the pandemic and, and a deeply divided uh, place. And um, so I, but he was willing to really share his experience with me. And I, first I should say, I liked him a great deal and he was very generous. And we had many, many conversations. And basically what I found, and this has been confirmed by academic researchers, first of all, he's a very sophisticated news consumer. And, and, and cares deeply about what he perceives to be civic life. And the, sometimes you see people talking about um, misinformation as if, if you took somebody like Charlie Loftus, who's a Trump supporter and merely made him read the New York Times every day, he would change his views. And that's not how people consume information. They consume information as part of a community that shares their beliefs and, and, and vision and understanding of the world. So, you know, when conspiracy started sort of circulating within his own community about what happened on January 6th or about the election itself, he, you know, because his sources of information were kind of other cops, um, the, the kind of conservatives that he associated with, this all became very much reinforced. And I think it's kind of a, it opened my eyes to the way in which I consume information as part of a community. And it also opened my eyes to the, to the notion that, you know, that the infodemic, at least as it played out in the United States, is a function of our political polarization. It's not simply a question of what information we access. It's a, it's a function of the communities that we're a part of and how deeply divided they are and the way in which irresponsible politicians are deepening and dividing us uh, instead of trying to find uh, opportunities for, for, for a you know, healthy public dialogue. So that's the, that's the lesson I drew from, from Charlie Loftus. And it was really uh, eye-opening for me to uh, you know, talk to him with an open mind and try and understand his perspective. You know, I just was reading um, in the New York Times uh, the story of a police officer. Um, first, them citing the statistics that the the biggest killer of law enforcement personnel in the last two years has not been guns by a long shot. It has been COVID nineteen. So they have some of the highest rates of anti-vax uh, attitudes and the highest rates of death. Over 300 law enforcement personnel have died from COVID-19. 
And this was the story of one of them. Um, so as you talked to Charlie and you heard about his news consumption habits, which included uh, consuming a lot of Fox News, is what would it take or what did it take? And, and in Charlie's case, he got COVID-19. He got uh, COVID-19. Yep. So what yeah, but he, has yeah. shaken him loose, if anything, or expanded his view of what is true and what is false? Again, I think it's a function of the communities that he's a part of. So he's part of this law enforcement community that they, they're, they're a virtual community, but they are sharing information constantly. And they have these views that are, are reinforced through the information bubbles that they're a part of. So that's one perspective that he very much shared. And then he's like, uh, you know, he used to support, uh, 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 he used to be a Democrat. He really disliked Obama. He became a Republican. He, you know, then went, you know, became a big Trump supporter. And he really listened to what Trump had to say and the community of Trump supporters that he also associated with. He was an advisor to the conservative group on campus. But he's, he's a little, you know, complicated. For example, he's very, he's very much, he considers himself pro-immigration. He does think that there's, you know, some uh, challenges associated with immigration, but he's not knee-jerk. And he also um, uh, was more than willing to be vaccinated. He was, he was happy to be vaccinated. So he's not an anti-vaxxer, um, but he did uh, take an anti-malarial drug when he got COVID and believed, believes that it cured him. And again, that's because he's hearing that and hearing that idea reinforced through the communities that he's a part of. So I think the way in which we think about the infodemic and the way it played out in the United States is not a question of, okay, we're gonna get the right information in front of people like Charlie Loftus and he'll just immediately you know, read it and have this realization and come to a census. No, we have to see it as whether you're talking about communities of Trump supporters or communities of uh, uh, black Americans, who uh, were also deeply distrustful of a lot of the information coming from government for their own particular reasons. You know, we have to figure out a way to, to, to kind of bring those communities into the information mainstream if we're going to have a productive uh, public uh, 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 um, square in which people with diverse backgrounds and experience feel genuinely included. Are there any examples of that? I mean, it seems that we are, you know, rather than coming together, we are further and further siloed into information ecospheres. You know, you now have uh, on the right, uh, you know, OAN, Fox News, Newsmax, which have become, you know, main generators and disseminators of disinformation and misinformation. So where's the hope for uh, addressing this and tackling this? I, I think I think there 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 is hope. I mean, the first thing is I think I think hopefully the purpose of this book is just want to wake up. I, I hope that the the pandemic itself, the way it played out in this country and around the world, is a wake up call for why we need information systems that and, and news that that brings communities together instead of dividing them, which is what we have now. So the, 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 there is no cure for the infodemic that involves tinkering with the algorithms or you know, uh, you know, kind of making changes to the information system around the edges. It requires 
political leadership, responsible political leadership over a long period of time. And it requires you know, rebuilding a consensus about the role of information within a democracy that unites the political leadership. Without that, you know, you're not you're not going to solve this problem with algorithms. Not that that isn't important. I mean, I don't I don't want to dismiss the whole debate over you know content moderation and creating a healthier online space as 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 insignificant. It obviously is vital. But in terms of creating a healthier information system, you cannot uh, you know you cannot change that without um, addressing the uh, shortcomings in you know in, in in the political leadership not just in this country but in so many countries around the world and of course there's a there's a there's a there's a, a destructive feedback loop between the way information is processed and circulated and the kinds of political leaders you know that are emerging in so many places and finally we're having this conversation just as Elon Musk is purchasing mm. Twitter and uh, from all that he has advocated in the past is every expectation that whatever content moderation or fact checking uh, there has been, and it hasn't been terribly effective in the social media realm, uh, it's about to get weakened because he is not a fan of those things. Um, what is the role of social media and what hope do we have for containing contagions be they information or viral ones uh, with social media and perhaps with you know less not more involvement uh, in the information disseminated there well the, the the only thing I'll say about Elon Musk and I've been sort of following you know on Twitter of course you know some of the most knowledgeable people on this like He's a very, very unpredictable guy. That goes without saying. And secondly, there, there secondly, there are you know the kinds of decisions that Twitter has made about you know how to um, moderate content on the platform are sort of driven by broader social forces and business decisions. You know that will you know that may that may um, you know uh, uh, compel or limit the ability of, of Elon Musk to reshape the platform. On the other hand, he may turn it upside down. The point is we just don't know. I think the I think what 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 we're being hit in the face with is this is a absolutely vital and essential form of uh, means through which not just people in this country, but people all over the world communicate and share information. And one individual who's kind of erratic person with all sorts of ideas that seem, you know, uh, it's sometimes, you know, pretty out there, just bought, you know, this essential platform. And he's going to do, you know, who knows what he's going to do with it? We don't know. We as a society have very little influence over that. So I think that that is, again, the, the kind of challenge we're facing is how do we create an information system, I like to say, that serves the public interest. And I think that we need, you know, that serves the interest, public interest in this country and around the world. And I think we need a, a an enormous uh, recalibration of this system. And it, it's it's not a question, again, of just like fixing Twitter. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a broader challenge that has to do with um, 
creating a consensus about the role of information in a democracy and and having people come together around that consensus and you know that's not going to happen overnight uh the, the road that we're ahead of us is going if, at the best case scenario uh is going to be very bumpy well joel simon i want to thank you for joining us this week on the vermont conversation i really enjoyed it great to speak with you Joel Simon is a fellow at the Toe Center for Digital Journalism at the Columbia Journalism School and a former executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. His newest book is The Infodemic, How Censorship and Lies Made the World Sicker and Less Free, co-authored with Robert Mahoney.